Welcome to Crossroads Church in Rowlett. We're so glad you're here. Join us here for our weekly sermons or visit crossroadsrowlett.org for more information. Well, even in a series called Top Ten, we're talking about the Ten Commandments. And we want to have like a really um, kind of positive look at the Ten Commandments. That these are ancient rules for our modern joy. They're actually there for our freedom. But a lot of times we get that twisted. See, these are not rules, like if you're a guest or maybe you don't have a relationship with God, these are not the rules you follow to get on God's good side. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so they're not to get on his good side. And rules do not create relationship. Like in my marriage to Crystal... Uh, There are certain rules that we follow, but those rules weren't what came first. Relationship came first. I have a relationship with her, and because I have a relationship with her, we've been married for 25 years, and I don't date or sleep with other people. That's how I stay married and alive also. (laughs) It is the rules that help us thrive. It's the rules that help us move forward on and in the path that God has for us. Um, and so it's the relationship that comes first, and then the rules are what comes after that. The way we've been saying it during this series is that rules don't create relationship, they enable the relationship to thrive. And today, we're going to be looking at the Eighth Commandment. Uh, anybody want to guess what next week's going to cover? You guys are so smart. Ninth Commandment. Uh, so let's read the, the, the uh, Eighth Commandment together. Exodus chapter 20, verse 15 Uh, Do not steal. There you go. Uh, No complex theology here, to be honest. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys need to look up the Hebrew for steal, uh, but it means uh, steal. Uh, so, So it's relatively simple. Matter of fact, this actually in the original language, it boils down to two words, no stealing. It is really easy to understand, but if we're honest, it is hard to follow. You might be thinking, well, I don't think this is that hard to follow. As a matter of fact, you might be going, Jason, of all the weeks that we've discussed so far, this is the first one where I'm like, I'm safe. You're not. (laughs) Uh, But we have a culture that is geared around keeping people from stealing because it's so hard for our world to follow. We have things that we have to keep people from stealing. Guns, batons, tasers, pepper spray, nunchucks. I just had to add those in there because they're the coolest weapon that you can possibly fight with. Nunchucks. We have alarm systems and video systems. We have keypads and ring doorbells. We have little microchips on our credit card uh, that keep people from stealing. We have so many passwords that many of us have to create a document for our passwords that is also password protected. And some of you have forgotten the password to that document. Like it is really challenging. We have pin numbers and thumb scans and facial recognition and we have to convince computers essentially robots that we're not also robots by identifying street lights and bicycles and things like that in images all the time we have wallets that are secure so that people can't steal stuff from our wallet we are like a step away from wearing tinfoil hats so that the lizard people cannot read our minds All of these things are to make it harder to steal. However, the focus of the Eighth Commandment isn't on other people. The focus of the Eighth Commandment is you shall not steal. You, me. And you might be going, oh, I don't steal. Well, let's see. I'm going to go through a list of some examples of stealing. 
Um, I'm going to be honest with you, I was doing this with some of our staff, and <laughs> I don't mean to throw them under the bus, but Wes said, when you do that, can you slow down? I'm trying to keep track of all the ways I'm stealing. <laughs> that is a direct quote. Now, the most obvious is this, taking stuff that doesn't belong to you, right? You go into a store, you take something that doesn't belong to you, you go into somebody's house. When I was a kid, our house was robbed one time, uh, and, and we didn't feel safe in our own home for months and months after that. Uh, but we take stuff in ways that we don't always think about. When I was a little kid, we listened to music on what was called uh, cassettes. Um, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, if you've never ordered cassettes from Columbia House, I don't trust you. Uh, so, uh, so it was these little rectangles, for those of you that are under 30. It was tiny little rectangles with little wheels with a literal piece of tape that ran through them. And you could put music on it. And when you got music that a friend of yours wanted, they didn't go buy it. You put it in your twin deck cassette player with another blank tape, and you recorded to the other one, essentially stealing. Now, the next generation goes, well, we didn't have tapes, so we didn't steal. No, you had CDs. And I remember being with some friends of mine at a concert. We went up to the merch table at a concert. The band people are sitting there. One of the people uh, that was in front of us bought a CD and then turned to their friends and said, you guys don't have to buy this. I'll burn mine for all of you in front of the band. Like, it's stealing. As a matter of fact, and this is going to get on some people here for a minute. Do you guys know that 25% of the people who are on Netflix today are not paying for it? Oh, this just got personal for some people. What about retail theft? Like stealing from brick and mortar stores. In 2022, retail theft accounted for 100 billion dollars in the U.S. Here's the part that shocked me. Employees were five and a half times more likely to steal than the shoppers. They were losing more from the stock room than the showroom, if you get what I'm saying. As a matter of fact, of companies that went down, that filed bankruptcy in 2022, 33% of them filed bankruptcy due to employee theft. How old are your kids? Some of you guys might say, well, my kid's 14 until you go to Disneyland and they're 12. <laughs> until you find an all-you-can-eat buffet and you got a kid with a half a beard and you're like, you're 12 and you're 12 and you're 12 and you're 12. And you go, that's not stealing. Yes, it is. And you're teaching your children that it's... And you're like, no, 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 you understand, we have reasons. So does every other thief. All thieves have bills. Like, it's not like a thing you can claim as a escape. What about cheating on your taxes? One trillion dollars annually is stolen by cheating on taxes. Now, I know a lot of people go, Jason, not, not really stealing. That's my money to begin with. Also, I'm keeping it from a corrupt government who's going to do bad stuff with it. The only problem you have with that is uh, the Bible. Paul, when he is in Rome, by the way, if you want to ever know what it's like to be a part of a bad government, uh, Rome in the first century, not a great place to be. And Paul writes in Romans 13, 7, pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. What about identity theft? In the U.S. last year, $43 billion was stolen in identity theft. You can steal by physically taking something. You can also steal by withholding something. For example, if you're a person that's withholding child support that you owe, 
Or maybe you're a person that is an employer and you're holding pay, holding pay from an employee who has earned it. I, I want to be real careful how I talk about this one, but bankruptcy. Can I tell you, there are two different ways that people file bankruptcy. Some of them legitimately have a massive loss in income through layoffs, or other, and they have no choice but to look for a legitimate way out. But can I also be honest? There are other people that they're not choosing bankruptcy as a legitimate way out. They're choosing it as a loophole to not pay things they promised they would pay. And isn't that stealing? What about, what about withholding things like honor and respect? By the way, honor and respect are not agreements. You don't have to agree to honor and respect somebody as an individual. We can disagree and still honor somebody in their humanity. Have you ever stolen time? Titus talked about time last week. It's the most valuable thing we have. If you need more money, you can take on more hours, get a second job. You can do something to earn more money, but you can't do anything to earn more time. It can only be spent once. Every minute, every second can only be spent one time. It's incredibly valuable. When you choose to cut in line in front of somebody or to cut in line in front of them in traffic, which I know is a relatively like, simple and easy way to think about this, or if you are coming in late to your work or coming in late to meet people, you are essentially stealing their time and declaring that you're more valuable than they are. It's a form of theft that we have to be careful of. What about employee theft? Just where you work. These were some shocking statistics to me, but the average U.S. employee claims to waste anywhere from 8 to 15 hours of their work week every week. That amounts to, in being paid for work that you're not doing, a loss to companies of $1.5 trillion a year. That is people on Facebook and Instagram planning travel while at your work, going on the internet just to mess around, doing personal shopping, or this was the most shocking thing that people were honest about, about how they spend their time at work, is they spend their time at their current company looking for a job from another company on a company computer using company internet. It's theft. It might be funny, but it probably shouldn't be. What about just doing your job halfway. The Bible says that when we work, see, we live in a culture that says you work according to your compensation, but we have a God who says you work as though you work for me. It has nothing to do with compensation. We as Christians do not work to the level of our compensation. We work to the level of our God, what he has called us to. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Otherwise, it is stealing. What about, and some, some of them, there might be employers in here that are like, yes, get them, get them, get them. What about employer theft? James chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 says, Look, the pay that you withheld from your workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have, lo- you have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourself. You have fattened your hearts in the day of the slaughter, that there are employers that are taking advantage of employees. Have you ever stolen talent? Maybe like, well, how would you steal talent? Anybody ever steal credit from somebody else? Steal homework? somebody else's paper, somebody else's work? What about stealing emotionally from people? Like you can steal emotionally from a guy or a girl that you are seeing by leading them on with absolutely no intention of commitment to them. You can steal intimacy from people. By having sex with people that you're not married to, you are stealing intimacy from their spouse or their potential future spouse. It's theft. We steal from our kids by staying late at work every time and choosing to prioritize them as next instead of where they should be in our life. 
There are many people who steal by manipulating. We want somebody to give us what we want, so we flatter them and manipulate them to get what we want, to take or steal what we desire. Now, God is going to speak about theft in terms that really might be surprising to us. In the book of Hosea, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says this. Hear the word of the Lord. This is God speaking. People of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth, no faithful love, no knowledge of God in the land. Verse 2, he's going to give you a list of the offenses that are bothering God. Cursing, lying, murdering. And you go, okay, that's pretty serious stuff. I get why God is upset. But then he says, stealing. And adultery are rampant, and an act of bloodshed follows another. Sandwiched between murder and adultery, stealing. Jason, is this really that big of a deal? Yes, it is to God. And you're going to see why in a moment. It's more serious than we think, so let's just kind of break this down little by little. The first is, why do we steal? Every one of the commandments always goes back to the first commandment. That every one of the commandments that we break goes back to the issue of idolatry. That there is something that plays a role in our life that was supposed to be occupied by God. That we're counting on something for fulfillment that isn't Him. And that's what's going to bring us out and call us to conviction. See, there are a lot of people when it comes to like money in their life, they see money as the source of a good life. A good life meaning they can get the cars, the home, the clothes, the vacations that they want. Those people are called spenders. How many of you are spenders? You don't have to raise your hand. Thank you for admitting that, though. Uh, <clears throat> How many of you might go, well, money is not a thing that I, I do that with. Money is my security. It, it's, it's retirement and safety. It's, it's just knowing that I have this net under me. How many of you, don't raise your hands right now, but would go, oh, I'm the saver person. Now, what's weird is, if I had had you raise your hands, there is this weird universal law that somehow every spender marries a saver. And you live in constant odds over this. And you're trying to figure out which one of us is wrong. Both of you. Because at the heart of the matter, both are counting on money to do what only God can do. God is our source of a good life and God is our source of security. What about looking at this from a non-monetary standpoint? Maybe you crave something and you think, I can't be happy without this thing, so I steal it. I steal credit, attention, honor, talent, whatever it is, ultimately declaring that God is not enough. That if I don't have this other thing, my life is somehow insufficient. So let's look at why this is so important. Why does stealing matter so much to the heart of God? Well, I'm going to give you several things, and the first one is this, if you're taking notes, stealing robs you of joy. I grew up broke. Um, weirdly, I did not know that I was broke. Any of you have that experience? Like, I grew up, because first of all, every friend I had, you know what, they were also broke. Everybody on my street was broke, and my mom would do clever things, like take very basic meals and then name them fancy things so that we thought we were rolling. Like my mom made a thing she called nectar and ambrosia. She called it the food of the gods. It was meatballs and gravy. That's all that it was. But we were like, ooh, nectar and ambrosia, look at us. <laughs> Let it rain. I mean, like, like we, we, we didn't know we were poor because we had nothing to compare it to. But today, everywhere in the world, because of our smart devices, the poorest children on the planet can compare their life to somebody else. And it steals joy because comparison is a thief of joy. 
See, we need to, to, to learn how to enjoy what we earn and don't steal what you can't. Enjoy what you earn and don't steal what you can't because ultimately what's going to be stolen is your joy. And God doesn't want you to lose your joy. Second thing, stealing robs you of a work ethic. Whew, this is going to get interesting right here, okay, guys? Proverbs 20, verse, 20, verse 17. And by the way, can I just say this? Because I don't want this to come off, uh, and some of this might. It's going to sound like uh, old man syndrome, okay? Like where you're, going to, you're going to hear me going, in my day. Like that's not what I'm getting at, okay? There is a struggle with this across generational lines. So when you hear me say this, don't sit there and just go, yep, these kids today. That's not what I'm saying. We see this in multiple generations. It's a struggle with work ethic. In Proverbs 20, verse 17, it says, Food gained by fraud tastes sweet, but one ends up with a mouthful of gravel. In other words, what he's saying in, th- in, in, in theft, in stealing, we, we, there's an initial thrill to get something uh, and, and, to, and, to, and to get it by fraud or dishonesty, but in the end, it leads to pain. We live in a world that's struggling with work ethic, and that is weirdly, we live in a culture that is now almost accepting of stealing. We live in a country that's struggling with this. If you want to watch some videos that'll blow your mind, just Google shoplifting, and because most companies are now told not to even, just to let them take it. There are multiple states that say if it's, if it's, if it's under $950, all we're going to do is write a citation, don't engage. It's too dangerous on multiple levels, or you know, what happens if they claim this against us, or that again, or whatever this, so they just let them take it. It was a video I was watching online, it was actually pretty impressive. It was a very, uh, a little lady in a long skirt, and she walked into a convenience store, took, took a 24 case of beer, put it between her knees, put her skirt back down, and walked out of the store, and the manager on the video goes, yep, she does that every day. And it sounds shocking to us. And I'm not, I'm not trying to throw her under the bus. What I'm trying to say is that we live in a world that operates like that, and what we're really having happen is we're robbing ourselves of the joy of earning something. Jesus contrasts stealing with what he came to do in this world. In John chapter 10, verse 10, you know this verse, it says, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Of all the adjectives that, that, that he could use, that John could use to describe Satan, to describe the devil, he uses the adjective thief. He says the thief, he came to steal. He came to kill this world. He came to destroy. He came to rob from us the beauty of living life the way that God has called us to, uh, the joy of work and purpose. In contrast to that, he says, I, Jesus, have come so that you might have life and have it in abundance. This is first and foremost about salvation, obviously, but it doesn't stop at salvation. It also is to a higher calling, to a higher purpose, and to a sense of integrity that we as Christians are called to live. In Proverbs chapter 21, starting in verse 25, it, said, it says, a slacker's craving will kill him because his hands refuse to work. And, and, now, parents, and I just want to say this to parents, and this is a struggle for all of us, but I, I don't want us to miss this, parents, because we want to make sure that we are not raising a slacker. Can I get a good amen? amen. Because it says that if we allow that, it will kill them. Because their hands refuse to work. So here's the thing I want us to get, and this isn't in your notes, but you can feel free to write it down. Parents, we need to be reminded, and not just parents, employers. Every, like if, you're, if you're held responsible for training up young lives, making everything easier for your kids when they are young makes life impossible for them when they are old. Making everything easy for them when they are young makes life impossible when they are older. 
See, we're called to train them up. There's, there's this thing that happens, and, and, and it, we are, it's a struggle for us because when, as a parent, you always want to give your kids a better life than you had. So when you can afford stuff, it's harder to say no, right? It's easy to say no when you can't afford anything. Don't have an option. But when you can afford it, it's harder to say no. But can I tell you something? Parents, anybody who has influence, you can say no to people and still love them. God does it to us all the time. As a matter of fact, I, I love this video by comedian Tim Hawkins. He talks about saying no to his kids, and he has a special phrase for it. I want you to watch this real quick. Yeah, my kids think I'm really cool. You know how cool my kids think I am? You know what their nickname is for me at home? Dr. No. <laughs> Dr. No. You know why? Because I give them a lot of no. A lot of kids get too much yes. I give them no. I call it the gift of no. <laughs> Parents, it's easy. Daddy, can I have that? No. Can I have the keys to the car? Let me check here. Uh, no. <laughs> Can I go over there? Nope. <laughs> Can I spend the night over there? Hmm, this old man, he said no. <laughs> Get creative, man. Eeny, meeny, miny, no. <laughs> now you're just somebody that I used to. No. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many fun ways to say no. <laughs> <laughs> he's making it a joke but there is a reality behind this when it comes to our work ethic if you want something there is a blessing to learning to work it's a blessing as a matter of fact that's the third thing that upsets god about stealing is stealing robs you of the blessing of work now a lot of people go well jason uh i think you're missing this theologically because work is a result of the fall of man false Theologically speaking, work is not a result of the fall. If you go back into Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, God gave to Adam and Eve work to be done in the garden, and the Bible says that Adam and Eve were tending or working the garden before sin ever happened. So work is not a result of sin. Sin instead didn't create work. Sin made work hard. Sin made work to where often there is little that you show for it. Today we live in a culture that has made an idol of doing nothing. And don't get me wrong, there are times when nothing is spectacular. When you go on vacation and you spend a few days on the beach, I love doing that, Crystal and I love doing that, where you just sit back and breathe and go, ah, and you relax. But can I tell you something? After a few days, I'm done doing nothing. Like, I feel the need to do something. Because here's what I've learned in 27 years of ministry counseling, I can't even tell you how many people, the most miserable people I have ever met on the planet are people who do nothing. Because God designed us with a purpose. We can't all be influencers. It doesn't work that way. Some of us have to do something. There's something to be done. There's something God's calling out of us to do. There is work, just like he gave Adam and Eve the work to tend the garden. He has given you the work to tend to something in your life. There's a purpose and a calling on your life. And that is why it's important that we understand doing good work is good for us. It's good for us. I want to talk real quick to senior adults. A lot of times we talk down to another generation. I want to talk, I want to talk up to an older generation. If you don't know if you're a senior adult, just ask us. We'll let you know. We can help identify. But listen, I'm going to tell you, I love our senior adults at Crossroads because I think you embody something that is so important. When I think about senior adults, I think about a lot of NBA games. 
I'm not a huge NBA fan, but I like NBA games when we start to get into the late part of the season and we start to get into the playoffs. And you know what part of the NBA game that I want to watch the most? I'm not really interested in the first, second, or third quarter. I jump in at the fourth quarter because that's the quarter that matters. Because I get to see what happens at the end and I get to see them fight for the win. If you are a senior adult in this room, you are in the fourth quarter and the game is not over. You are in the part of your life where often you are going to be contributing the things that matter most in the game that God has called you to play. And so I want to encourage you, continue doing what you are doing. Proverbs, 20, uh, Proverbs 12 verse 24 says, the diligent hand will rule, and the diligent hand will, like the hardworking hand will lead, is essentially what it's saying. The diligent hand will rule, but laziness will lead to forced labor. That if we allow laziness, it leads us to a place of bondage, bondage to sin, bondage to Satan, bondage to debt. And we don't want that. See, there's been lots of improvements that have happened over in our world, and I'm grateful for them. I'm grateful for the improvements that we've seen in the medical world, in the medical community. There's a lot of blessing there. I'm grateful for phones. I'm grateful that, that you've got this little pocket computer that you can take everywhere. It's really handy, super convenient. I love that there's GPS on that phone that will audibly tell you where to go because I grew up in a generation of people where you watched people drive down the highway at 90 miles an hour with a full-on map unfolded in front of them. And it's probably good that you now have somebody that says, turn right here. Like, that's helpful. There's been some improvements. Google is neat. I, I like the fact that you can just go, I think I recognize that actor. What other movie has he been in? Or I've got a question I don't know the answer to. Hey, hey, Siri. And you can just ask it, and it just tells you. Like, that's pretty cool. But it can also cause us to miss a blessing of doing some work. We live in a culture now that wants to get out of work at every turn. As a matter of fact, and I'll just tell you, and this is for me as a person that has a lot of people uh, that, that, that work with and for me uh, over the last 27 years, the most frustrating phrase that I hear from anybody is when we go, hey, can you do this? And they go, I don't know how. Let me tell you why that's frustrating for me. Because I, uh, in growing up, when somebody said, hey, I need you to do this, uh, I could say, I don't know how, and you know what they would say? Figure it out. Like, you don't always get the luxury of somebody else teaching you how to do it. Somebody has to learn how to do something for the first time. Put some work in. Go do it. But we live in a culture that I don't know how means I don't have to do it. We live in a culture where kids, adults, employees have figured out this weird thing. That if you do something so bad that the people who asked you to do it will stop asking you. It's like a superpower to get out of work. And I would tell you, if you oversee kids, adults, employees on any level, and they consistently are trying to be bad at something to get out of doing it, don't let them. Don't let them out. Your, your kids may not clean the kitchen or the bathroom to your standard, but don't let that be the reason you ask them to stop helping. Put them to work. Teach them. That's what we're called to do. This, is, this might be getting me in trouble. Um, we have a culture that calls our kids and our spouses these words, and, I, and it'll hear everything I'm about to say before you start throwing things. If you call your kids princesses and princes, you call your spouse kings and queens. Now, I understand that there's a term of endearment like baby, honey, all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about here. I do think there is a danger, if we're not careful, of using those terms because when we declare people in our life as royalty, royalty requires servants. We, as Christians, are not called to be royalty. We are called to serve royalty. We serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we have to be cautious 
about what message that may or may not send. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, for some of you that your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend is not here and you're about to text, oh, my pastor just said I can't call you this anymore, stop it. <laughs> Don't get me in trouble. Hear the heart of what I'm saying as we think about our words. I counsel married couples all the time, men, women, it doesn't matter. They got married for sex or romance or whatever they thought, but they have no clue how to serve one another. Again, we have a culture that wants to get out of work, and I think the government can have solutions to certain things, but we have too many people that are looking for a government to supply all their needs. They're looking for the government to essentially, in many people's lives, play the role of parent, to provide for them the things they need. The problem with seeing the government as your parent is that it will forever put you in the role of a child. We don't need to do that. We're called to work. Again, don't hear me saying that there is no benefit to that. There are good things that it provides, but we have to be careful the role that we allow it to play in our life. Doing good work is good for us. In Ecclesiastes, the Bible says a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. That word toil means your hard work because it feeds the soul. Let me tell you where I see this all the time. I see it right here. That's why I love our church so much. We got people that go to like best week ever, like 60 adults that worked like a billion hours. They were here so much time. People that went down to the Rio Grande Valley with us and served down there on mission trip with one of the most amazing churches we've ever met. And we, we were like, it was like 20 hour days. It was ridiculous. We got a team that's prepping to go to Germany and they're going to put in so much work. We have teams here that we do serve day and we do big give and we connect with our schools and with our community. We help people and there are people that invest so much time and it can be exhausting. And at the end of it, they are poured out and tired and filled with joy. You ever done something where you pour your life into it and it's exhausting, but you just still somehow feel full? That is the joy and the blessing of work. Doing good work is good for us. Fourth thing, stealing keeps us from the finish line of the eighth commandment. We told you guys from the beginning that in these commandments, every one of the commandments is a first step, it's not the finish line. In other words, that there is a, it's a starting principle, do not steal. But for every negative command, do not steal, there is a positive affirmation. I want you to understand what that might be when we look at this in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Paul says, let the thief no longer steal. Essentially, he rephrases the eighth commandment. He says, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do an honest work. In the Greek, that means do something good. Like, that's what it says. Do something good with his own hands. And then he gives us the finish line. So that, you should circle that, highlight it, underline it, something. Why do we no longer steal? So that he has something to share with anyone in need. See, the, the negative command is do not steal. The positive affirmation is be generous. I love this quote from Pastor Tim Keller. He says this, You've not stopped being a thief, when you stop taking, you have stopped being a thief when you start giving. That's such a powerful thought. Not a whole lot of generous thieves out there, are there? Like Robin Hood's a great movie. I've never seen it play out much in real life. But, because, well, and because, it's because when you steal, you have a hard time letting that stuff go. What's crazy for me is some of the most generous people I have ever met are also the most hardworking people I've ever met. It's almost as if when you keep your hands busy doing the work God's called you to do, those hands are less busy clenching on to the things that God has given you. It's open and gracious and giving. 
powerful. See, because in the end, we want to make sure that we are not stealing from God, from his purposes, from his mission for our life. You might go, how can you steal from God? Well, there are three different ways that you can steal from God. In Ephesians 4.12, it covers a couple of them. It says, equip the, this is one of our like, core verses for our whole staff and leadership here at Crossroads. Equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. Like our job is to help you discover your gifts, your talent, and your calling, and then give you an opportunity to go and serve. The calling of the church isn't equip the church to come watch Jason do ministry. It's equip the church, equip you to do ministry. Some people ask, how come we we have so many different people that lead worship? How many have so many different people that teach? How come we're always rotating people in here and out there? Why do we have so many people leading in all these things? Because our job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We're not built on the foundation of an individual at Crossroads. We're built on a base called the body of Christ. And that's so powerful when you think about it. So what it means is you have, if you're a believer, you are called by God to do something. There is a calling on your life. There is ways that you are supposed to serve in your life, in your home, in your neighborhood, and in your church. And when you do not give that time and that talent to God, you're stealing it from him. He gave it to you to be used by him and for him. And when we don't, it's theft. But he also says we can steal treasure in Malachi 3, verse 8. It's a really convicting conversation that God is having with essentially us. It says, will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth of the contributions. You are suffering under a curse. Yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Verse 10, bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. You, you hear the connection here? He doesn't say bring it in so that it can be self-serving. He says bring it in so that it can go out. That's the calling of the church. He says, test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See that I will open the floodgates of heaven and pour out my blessing for you without measure. See, we rob God of our treasure and many people feel like they're living in a, in a really difficult, challenging time. And you're like, man, I almost feel cursed. And I'm going to go, well, is it because you refuse to be generous? Because he says that cursed are those who do this to God. This is one of the reasons I love our church. If you've gone here for more than a week, you know something to be a fact. We don't talk about asking for your money all the time. Most of you guys have been to a place, been to churches, and, and listen, I'm not knocking them. Everybody has different reasons for this, but where you feel like every time you walk in the door, somebody's asking you for money, asking you for money, asking you for money. We don't do it here. And yet God has been unbelievably faithful, and you have responded in unbelievable faithfulness. We've seen nothing but the, the, the giving of our church go up every year for the last eight years. Turns out that if we teach you how to fall in love with Jesus... We don't have to teach you, like we don't have to beat you over the head with tithing. We don't have to beat you over the head with giving. We can bring you to understand fully the love of Jesus Christ, and then your transformed life will begin to walk in obedience to Him. And by the way, can I tell you this? And because I don't want people to make it the wrong message. Like a lot of people hear this and they go, well, they want me to give all my money to the church. No, we want you to give your money wherever God tells you to give your money. We want you to be obedient to Him. If that's here, praise God for that. But that's what's so cool because here, what you guys have learned to trust this church in is that when you give here, it doesn't get stuck here. What I mean by that is there's a reason that our church is effective in India, Germany, Mexico, Africa, down in the Rio Grande Valley, 
We've helped churches all over the state of Texas. We have helped churches in Kentucky. We have helped churches in a variety of places. We have helped hundreds of families that have never walked into this church in our community and in our surrounding area over the last several years. We have partnerships with schools that we provide needs for students, that we provide for teachers. We have made an incredible impact, and all of that is because you all have continued to be faithful. And so the Bible says, God says in this verse, test me and see if I don't pour out the blessings beyond what you can hold. I would tell you over eight years, what we have experienced is God continuously pouring out blessings. And because of that, we are able to help and bless and give away place after place after place. It's amazing. See, the Bible says not to test God in every other place except in our generosity. And then in that, essentially the Lord is daring you to trust him with your resources. Now, here's what I want you to get. We'll wrap up here in just a couple of minutes. The warning against stealing is actually an invitation to love. And I don't want you to miss this. It's a really powerful way that I want to illustrate this to you. It at least makes a difference in my life. I, I was a theater geek uh, in, uh, in high school uh, college did theater and stuff like that. Shocking. Uh, so um, uh, love, love all that. Love plays and acting and stuff. One of my favorite uh, shows is a show called Les Miserables. Um, if you don't know anything about the show, let me explain a little bit of it. The, the, the central figure is a guy named Jean Valjean. And early in his life, he steals. And he gets put in a horrible prison. Uh, the punishment does not fit the crime. He ends up being a hardened criminal based on a very minor petty theft and it wrecks who he is. He doesn't know how to be anything else. When he leaves prison years and years later, he's bitter, he's angry, and he doesn't know how to receive anything. He can't find any, he's marked as a prisoner, as a thief. And he can't find any place to stay on the first night out, so he goes to a church, and he's brought in by a priest. And the priest shows him grace and kindness and feeds him and gives him a place to stay, but he doesn't know how to receive this grace. He does not receive that kindness. So in the middle of the night, he gets up and he takes a bunch of silver that is there in the church. He puts it in a bag and he takes off just fulfilling who he thinks he is. I am a thief and I'll always be a thief. The police catch up with him. They bring him back. They confront him with the priest. They say, here, we found the guy that stole all your silver. And the priest says the last thing Jean Valjean ever thought he would say. He said, no, no, he didn't steal that. I gave it to him. As a matter of fact, you forgot some of these silver candlesticks. Let me put them in your bag too. And then the, after the police leave, the priest has this quote in the show. It says, Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to what is evil but what is good. I have bought your soul to save it from black thoughts and a spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. And what you see happen in the rest of the story, is that this bitter, hardened criminal is transformed by generosity. He is going to spend the rest of his life running into a dark world, helping widows and orphans and people in need, and he will spend every bit of his life blessing other people because his life has been radically transformed. Generosity changed his life. Love changed his life. There's a New Testament version of Les Miserables. I want to read it to you and share a couple of thoughts before we close, and that's in Luke chapter 19. I want you to see the transformation of somebody. We often look at this as a kid's story, but it's way bigger. A lot of, a lot of you in children's church or Sunday school growing up, you learned about this guy. 
His name's Zacchaeus. He was a and a wee little man, was he? Yeah. He climbed up in a... You know the song. All right, good. I want to read you the story. We're going to look at this from the adult standpoint for a moment. Verse, chapter 19 of the book of Luke, verse 1, it says, He entered Jericho, this is talking about Jesus, and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus who was chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd, since he was a short man... So running ahead, he climbed up in a sycamore tree to see Jesus. Since he was about to pass that way, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and he welcomed him joyfully. All who saw it began to complain, he's gone to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I've extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay it back four times as much. Today's salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. I just want you to notice a couple of quick things. First thing, notice his role. Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector. If I asked you today to make a list of the most, uh, of your like, most favorite, most popular jobs in America, I'm guaranteeing IRS agent doesn't make the list. And in our culture, it is because we find it slightly oppressive and they have bad customer service. In their day, they were traitors and thieves. See, the Romans had figured out that if they took a Roman citizen and put that in a, uh, a city that they had conquered, that Roman person didn't know where all the people and all the money were, so they didn't collect as much tax. But if they could get a local person to turn on the rest of their city, then they could make a lot more money. And they would give them a battalion of soldiers. And those soldiers could beat, rape, murder, whatever they wanted. And they would tell the tax collector, you collect this percentage. Anything beyond that, you can keep. And by the way, the people have no idea what the number is. So you can get as much from them as you can possibly bleed out of them. This was a horrible, horrible person who exploited his neighbors, his friends, and his family. As a matter of fact, so much so that tax collectors, it was Jewish law that you could lie to a tax collector because tax collectors were not considered human. They saw them as animals. Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector in the biggest, wealthiest city. He rich. He wanted money so bad he sacrificed everything to get it. And by the way, can I tell you this? I, I don't know that I'm right, but I have a thought about him climbing into this tree. I don't think he climbed into the tree because, uh, because he couldn't see uh, at the crowd. I think he climbed up in the tree because the crowd wouldn't let him in to begin with. Here's what I mean. Uh, my, my wife's family, uh, I, I love them. They are all uh, uh, petite. They're short people. They're very short people. Um, if I go and hang out with Crystal and her family in their house, I look like, a, like an NBA star. Like, like I, I look human. They're all like right here. Like Crystal's mom is what, 4'8"? Four, four yeah, she's tiny. Okay, she is very, very. So I look gigantic in there. And you know what they never do when I'm with them? Get in my way. I can see over all of them. It is not a problem. See, I'm wondering if the reason he climbed the tree because the people that were there that were trying to get to Jesus had already made up their mind that Zacchaeus could never get to Jesus. 
And the self-righteous, judgmental people who were claiming to follow Jesus forced the guy that needed him the most outside. And I just want to declare to you, first of all, as Christians, we don't want to do that to anybody else. But the second thing that I want to say is if you're a person that's always felt on the outside, don't let self-righteous, judgmental people keep you from coming to Jesus. Because he wants to know you. Second thing I want you to notice, notice why he came to Jesus. Uh, He is not in crisis. There's nothing in the story that says he has no financial crisis. We don't, there's no indication that he has cancer. Uh, There's nothing in here that says he's having some sort of marital issue. Um, There's a lot of people that that will claim that most people only come to Jesus during crisis. And it's true that a lot of people come to Jesus during crisis. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I am saying that sometimes that can be a challenging time. Because a lot of times people come to Jesus in crisis, and when the crisis is over, they leave. Because they came to Jesus for what they could get out of him instead of coming to Jesus for who he is. And so you have to be careful about your motivation. But we don't see that in Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is not in crisis. He realizes that he has built his life on something that is worthless, and he sees something worthwhile. And then I want you to notice how Jesus enters Zacchaeus' life. In that time, to eat with someone was a show of intimacy, of connection. To eat with someone was, was a show of love. And Jesus eats with, don't miss this church, Jesus eats with Zacchaeus before Zacchaeus got cleaned up. They declared he's going to eat with a sinner. He's going to eat with a sinful man. Jesus didn't love you after you got cleaned up. You couldn't get cleaned up without him. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. He came to eat with you before you got clean also. And so I think it's important that we do not miss that. Jesus enters his life. He doesn't get changed in order to be saved. Salvation comes looking for him, and that's what changes who he is. And then I want you to notice the change that comes when he meets Jesus. See, in response to Jesus, can I just tell you, church, in response to Jesus, when you meet Jesus, your life's supposed to change. It doesn't change overnight, and it changes incrementally, but if you've been a believer for the last 20 years and there was virtually no difference, I would just ask you, start asking questions of your life of what did it mean when you got saved? I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm saying you should start to ask why has tra- You're, There is no place in the Bible where you will see a person that encountered Jesus, received him, and then walked away unchanged for the rest of their life. We should be transformed. And he is transformed. So much so that he says, I'm going to give back four times everything that I extorted. Do you know that it was actually a Levitical standard for how much he was supposed to give back of what he extorted? In Leviticus, if you took more than you were supposed to, you have to give back 20%. If you took money, you give an extra 20%. Took cattle, extra, I don't know how you give 20% of a cow, but like you have 20%. But he goes, I'm not stopping at 20%. I'm going to go with 400. So he says, I'm going to give back four times. It's amazing. And what's cool is when he does it, and he says, hey, I'm going to do four times the amount. He, he, it's in, the, in the original Greek, it's not a sad way that they write. They write with emotion, kind of undergirding the wording. And so when he writes with it, it's not, oh, okay, God, I'm going to give this much, so maybe I can get back into your good graces. No, it's written like, hey, Dad, check this out. This is going to be awesome. That's how it's written. Zacchaeus is excited because money no longer has a hold on him. He's found a greater treasure in Jesus. See, the the ironic part of this is that Zacchaeus was despised and stuck in a tree, and Jesus will die despised on a tree for him. Zacchaeus 
doesn't deserve the grace. He doesn't deserve the freedom. He doesn't deserve any of this. He doesn't deserve it. But in the greatest act of generosity that has ever been done, for God so loved the world that he, what? Gave. The greatest act of generosity, Jesus trades place with Zacchaeus and he brings him down out of a tree of being despised and he climbs up on a tree to be despised and removes the penalty of sin from him. See, that's ultimately the key to generosity is generosity breaks barriers. It shatters the wall of sin and separation. Generosity will break down barriers. When we are kind to people and generous to them, people that have put up walls against God in the church, those walls start to come down. When you are generous to somebody in your home that refused to listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ and you are generous with them, there's amazing the walls that come down. Jesus Christ, God the Father, the Holy Spirit uses acts of generosity and always has ever since creation and the cross to tear down barriers for people to come to know him and can i tell you what's so cool to me is that zacchaeus has more fun giving away than he ever got from being a tax collector maybe you're sitting here you go i don't steal anything jason and i would just ask you that's step one have you ever asked yourself if you've gone beyond not stealing to a life of generosity because if not can i tell you something you'll be bored You'll be bored as a Christian. Anybody that comes into my office and says, Jason, I'm living my Christian life, but I am super bored with it, then I can tell you, you are not giving God your time, you are not giving God your talent, and you are not giving God your treasure. Because if you were, sucker, you would not be bored. Because <laughs> God will do some amazing things in your life. Again, when we think about this at Crossroads, I love that our church is one that is generous with their time, their talent, and their treasure. And maybe you're a person that's sitting here and you, and you go, well, you know, Jason, is, is there a need for more around here? Um, and don't hear this as, as a push for stuff. Hear this as information that we want to give you to pray about. Uh, the first thing I would tell you is that at this church, and we're going to have a meeting coming up, uh, I don't know for sure when, but soon. It's going to be talking about vision and where we see God calling us. We see God moving in some areas that are really, really powerful. And here's what I would tell you. Uh, right now, you, you guys have been so faithful. We have what we need for the current ministries of Crossroads. But God's vision for our church will always exceed our resources. There is always more he is calling us to, and we see more coming now. And I would tell you this, if you're a person that maybe wants to test the idea of generosity, and maybe you haven't, I'm going to tell you a very specific thing you can do today. Our, our partners in India, if you don't know anything about it, we partner with a church in India, uh, um, with a, a ministry in India that rescues young women out of human trafficking, sex trafficking. We put them in a home. It's the place they live. There's a person that is paid to stay in that home with them. They are discipled. They go to school, all those things. And uh, they do not have free education in India. And this is the time, uh, this, we're actually a little past the time of year where they are needing to pay for school fees for those girls. Now, as a church, we are going to send those resources one way or another. But if you go, hey, I'd love to help, then you can either online or um, on one of the envelopes or on a check, you can, you can put a donation of any amount that you want. Um, and you can just, in the memo line, say India. 100% of anything that comes in for that, we are going to send over there to them. We want to make sure those girls are being educated. That will give that, listen, you, you want to see generations changed when you get to see that kind of stuff happen. When these young ladies get educated and come up and are discipled Christ followers, it is a game changer in their culture. And so if you want to help with that, it costs us about $5,000 to get the, uh, all those kids paid for for school. 
If that's something you'd like to help with, that is something that you can jump into. And the reason I want to say it that way is I'm not saying, oh my gosh, we need, we need money here for this. I'm saying we, we are using this as an opportunity to give it away. And if you want to participate in that generosity, we would love for you to. I know i got to wrap up. I've been incredibly long-winded today, but I'm, I'm going to do this. I want you to notice that the generosity that we show is evidence of real change in our own life. Generosity is supposed to come pour out of us. Changed people should want to see other people changed. Found people should want other people to be found. Discipled people want other people to be discipled. Freed people want to see other people set free. Loved people want to see other people loved. That's generosity. That what we've received, we desperately want other people to experience. And when we don't do that, we break the eighth commandment. See, the core of this is simple. God wants us to love seeing lost people come to Jesus more than we love any of the stuff that we have. So the two responses that I would call you to today are simply this. One, maybe you're a person who go, I don't know anything about this salvation thing, and I would just tell you the same thing that, that, that Jesus told Zacchaeus. Salvation has come to your house today. You don't have to leave here without it. At the end of this service, we'll have our prayer team on the sides of the room. They would love to talk to you. I would love to talk with you. If you don't know what it means to follow Christ, we would love to do that. And then the other part is maybe you're going through a life where you are struggling for whatever reason. Just ask yourself, have you been generous? Treasure, sure, but what about your time? What about your talent? Have you given to God what God has called you to give? If not, then the Bible says there is a weight to that that impacts our life. So maybe beyond do not steal, let's learn to be generous. Let's pray. God, thanks for today. Thanks for your word, and I pray that it challenges us. God, if there's anything that, that I've said that, um, uh, that in any way is, is needlessly uh, uh, offensive or uh, uh, come across the wrong way, God, I pray that just by your Holy Spirit, God, you would um, clear that up, because I don't want to stand in anybody's way or be an obstacle. God, I hope that we take this to heart and we don't, we don't uh, take this and let it be something that we um, dismiss and go, well, that's not an issue for me, but that we would see throughout this message that this is something that you are calling all of us to. It's not just a spirit that says, I won't steal. It is a heart that follows our God to be generous in the world around us, to tear down barriers and bring people to you. This is not some little commandment. This is a huge deal. And so, God, I pray that you would give us a heart that understands that. And God, I think that we begin to understand that the closer we get to you. And so even right now, as we go into this time of worship, God, that we would think about what it means to approach a holy God and to follow his mission, his calling, and his purpose for our life and worship him with everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen.